There's a possibility that I might bake your noodle a little bit today because I want to talk about the Star of Bethlehem. The Star of Bethlehem is, uh, is an interesting critter. Um, we've been talking about uh, getting back to beginner's mind uh, for the last uh, couple months at least. And it's all about coming back and, and getting rid of all of our preconceptions and just being able to completely uh, get back to a child's vision where we're just seeing exactly what is in front of us without all the bias, without the filter and everything. In order to do that, we're going to have to be willing to question everything. Can we question everything? Are we ready and willing to let go, to sell everything and to just come back right down to the, to the baseline? In order to be able to do that, though, and something I learned, and maybe you're all experiencing, is we have to be able to give ourselves permission, right, to question tradition. We have to give ourselves permission to question the doctrine, to question the theology, to question the received beliefs that we have been adhering to entire lives. And we have to, in order to do that, we have to move past the fear, right? The fear of God's wrath, the fear of the ostracization of other people if we veer off of what they have de deemed is accepted belief. That's not an easy thing to do. In fact, it's terrifying for us to do that. And it usually only happens after some sort of trauma, some sort of loss has taken place that was great enough to do the work for us, basically. Those times of trauma, those times of great loss, we were just talking about Bob yesterday. Those moments of loss pull the curtain back on our safe belief systems, the ones that we have relied on and have derived comfort from, uh, toujours, right? But suddenly, they don't work anymore. Suddenly, they're not adequate to explain what it is we're experiencing, to give relief from the pain that we're feeling. And so, to give ourselves permission, intentionally, right? to give ourselves, consciously give ourselves permission to go outside the pale, beyond the pale. This is what we're talking about. Now, if all of y'all are still here, <laughs> then it's because you have been willing to tear things down in your life. You've been willing to let go of things that you've held on to for so long. And that's what we're going to continue to try to do here. Last week, we challenged the traditional Christmas story. And not just to be contrary, not just to tear things down because we can, but to try to get at a deeper truth, to try to understand what was the, the basic message of the Christmas story. What are we trying to get across? You know, the Gospels portray Jesus' birth when we actually get back to the details as absolutely ordinary. It was an ordinary first century Galilean birth. All the details line up. Now, of course, the shepherds and the magi had a completely different experience. But what we pointed out last week is that they were prepared to see something beneath the surface, while others were not. Those who were in the house with Mary and Joseph didn't see anything unusual about this couple, about the birth. They didn't even make room for them in the living space of their house. Herod and his court, they didn't see anything unusual that the magi saw. So if you were prepared to see beneath the surface, beneath this ordinariness, beneath a poor, speechless child living on the margins of life, then you could see something different. But that was spiritual sight that was kicking in. And so that's what we were looking at. 
How can we learn to see with those kinds of eyes the shepherd consciousness, the gifts of the magi, that they could still, even with their wealth and power, live life as on a veem, that poor in spirit quality of realizing you're poor even if you're rich. This is what we're going at. The Gospels are pointing us toward that type of seeing so that we don't miss the hour of our visitation. Now, only Matthew and Luke give us any birth narrative at all. And we spent last week mostly on Luke, looking at the details of the birth. This week, we want to spend our time in Matthew, because Matthew gives us a story of the Magi following the star, right? And I've always been fascinated by the story. I can remember as a, as a child, you know, the star. What was this star? You know, even then I was questioning things. I loved astronomy. I loved, you know, I had my... Does everybody remember the Golden Book Encyclopedia? Anybody old enough to remember? Okay. My Golden Book Encyclopedias and going through and looking at the solar system and I was fascinated. Well, what was this star all about? There was one Christmas Eve that I was waiting up, you know, trying to see Santa Claus. Of course I was. And I remember looking out the window and there was this huge, bright star just over the horizon. And I was just struck by it. And I'm looking at it, and as I'm looking at it, and kind of squinting so I can see it more clearly, suddenly there were rays that were perpendicular in this way, and it formed a cross around the star. And I was completely convinced I just saw the star of Bethlehem. You know? It was years later that I realized I was looking through the screen mesh over the window that created the, you know. But it didn't spoil my moment that Christmas. But I've always been fascinated by the star. What is this star really? What is it all about? If we're going to have any chance of understanding what the star can mean and the purpose behind it, we're going to need to act like forensic detectives, sifting through the evidence. So let's take a look at Matthew 2 and see what we've got to work with here in the actual text of the gospel. So Matthew 2, starting at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king... Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Yeah, beware of kings when you tell them a new king has been born, right? Um, so these are the clues. This is all we have to work with. This is the entire birth narrative in Matthew. This is all there is. 
So what are we going to do with that? What do we have to work with to try to understand this star? First of all, Jesus is born in the days of Herod. Now, what day? We'd like to know what day was Jesus born, wouldn't we? You know, and we have no clue here. No day is given. Just in the days of Herod. Now, there are two basic schools of thought on this because everyone is very, very convinced that Jesus was not born on December 25th. That just doesn't comport with anything. There are two, two different schools of thought. One is that he was born in the spring, maybe March, maybe April. And the reason for that is just the little clue given in Luke about the shepherds. Because on the night that Jesus was born, the shepherds were watching their flocks by night. All right? Shepherds didn't, in that first century Judean and Galilean uh, context, watch their flocks by night during the cold winter months. They would corral them in the cold winter months. In fact, the lambing season was in the spring, and they were definitely then in the fields, and they watched over them night while the lambs were small. And all the way through the summer, but it would have been no later than September. By then it would have been gotten cold enough that they would have pulled all the flocks in at night and corralled them in pens. So for them to be out and watching their flocks by night, that gives us probably a summer or, or spring, possibly summer time for Jesus' birth, but definitely not the dead of winter on 1225. Now the other school of thought is a lot more complicated, and I'm not going to go into it in any sort of detail. But it is postulating that Jesus was born in the fall, probably September. And the reason that they think this is if you go back into the backstory in Luke, you have Zechariah and Elizabeth, who eventually become the father of John the Baptist. And Zechariah gets a vision at a very specific course of his priestly duties that can be dated. You can know what time of year he was in the temple doing that specific course, because the course is named. And then you just start to do the chronology from there. It's when he's done with his course, he comes home, Elizabeth conceives, and it's miraculous because she's really too old and was barren and all this sort of thing. And we know that Jesus was six months younger than John. Mary conceives in the sixth month of, of uh, Elizabeth's pregnancy. So kind of moving all that stuff forward, it looks like John would have been born in, in June and Jesus was born in September. Okay, it comports with the uh, with the flocks by night thing as well. So spring, fall, maybe April, maybe September. How can we know for sure? Well, obviously we can't. But what we do know is that it wasn't 1225. Now, how did that happen? 1225, December 25th, was adopted in about the 4th century by the church. And this was after the church had merged with the Roman Empire and become the state religion of Rome. And so now you had a clash of cultures. You had two cultures that had to be brought together. And, the, you know, how do you do that? Even though that Christmas was placed on December 25th, that wasn't widely celebrated within the church until the 6th century. And, and as far as the ninth century, uh, in terms of wide liturgical acceptance. Why 1225, though? Well, the winter solstice is December 21st. That's coming up here next week. Now, what's a solstice? It literally means sun stands in Latin. But as the days get shorter and shorter as we move from the equinox to the, the winter solstice, um, there's a point right at the solstice where the sun stops and then the days start getting longer again as we move to the spring equinox. So that moment where the sun stops is called the solstice. 
the, the days are lengthening, lengthening, the sun is lower, lower in the sky, it stops its downward trajectory and then comes back up the other side. That's a big deal. That was a big deal to the ancient people. If you think about it, how frightening it would have been, not understanding any sort of science, to see your days waning and waning and it getting colder and colder. Is the sun ever coming back or is the earth just going to burn out? You know, and to have the sun turn around and come back again, that was a huge point of celebration for the people. So much so that in Rome, they had a festival called Saturnalia. That was uh, to honor the god Saturn, who is the god of agriculture, the god of the harvest, the god of seed sowing. And so it was basically a celebration for the harvest that was to come in the spring, that the planting would return. And this turned into a week-long festival in Rome from December 17th to the 23rd. And it was characterized by giving gifts, making merry, and decorating houses and trees. Sound familiar? None of this was going on in the Christian tradition. This was all in the, the Roman tradition. Aurelian, the uh, Roman Empire in 274 CE, established December 25th as the Dies Natalis Solus Invicti, which literally means the birthday of the invincible sun. So 1225 was the official Roman feast day for celebrating the sun god's return and Christmas was simply overlaid on both of those holidays. And the idea being that Jesus was the light coming into the world. And so that, I, that, that kind of overlaying on the sun god made sense. But most importantly, the uh, celebration was already happening. The people were already used to it. Now we're just going to change the faces. It was no longer Saturn. It was now Jesus. But that's how 1225 got established, even though scholars are sure it had to have been in the spring or possibly the fall. Now, what year? Well, we have no idea what year. There's nothing in the Gospels. And all we have to go on is the Gospels. But in the 6th century, in 525, Pope John I commissioned a monk by the name of Dionysus Exegus. It literally means Dennis the Little. He was a short guy. And he asked him to um, do new Easter calculation tables. Easter is really complicated. You know, Easter is always on a different Sunday all the time. You know, you know what Easter, how you calculate Easter? Easter is the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. So it's, you know, they were on lunar calendars back in, uh, in Hebrew days. But yeah, so it's always moving because, you know, the, the sun, when is the first full moon after the spring equinox on March 21st? So the tables were not working anymore with the calendars that they had. And so Dennis the Little was supposed to do new Easter calendars that would be accurate. Well, he threw in for no extra charge, resetting the calendar to the birthday of Jesus. Up till then, Rome usually informally, they just counted their years by who was consul, who was leading at the time. It was just in the year of the consul so-and-so. But formally, the, the numbering originally was from, it was AUC, Ab Erde Urbe Condita, which means from the founding of the city, which in our calendar would be 753 BCE. But in the third century, it was reset to the uh, reign of Diocletian, a reforming emperor, who was also the greatest persecutor of the church. He was the one who instituted the last and longest and most deadly persecution the church had seen. And yet the numbering of the years in the Roman Empire were 
starting with his reign, and Dennis the Little thought that was unacceptable. So he calculated where Jesus was born and reset it to zero. Now, it took about 900 years before the rest of the church was actually using what became Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. But at least he gave it a go. But he was wrong. <laughs> he said... He said the zero year. And, believe, and by the way, there is no zero year in uh, B.C., A.D., which is now B.C.E. and C.E. There's no zero year. It just goes from year 1 B.C.E. to year 1 C.E. or A.D. Except for the astronomical calendar has a zero year. They put a zero in so that the leap years would land on even four factors of four. You know, it's just all this crazy stuff, right? So he set it to 753 AUC, which is what we have as our zero year, or year one, I should say. But we know that he was born in the days of Herod, and Herod died in 4 BCE, so he was at least four years off in where Jesus was born. And so, what year is it? We don't know, but we know that Jesus had to have been born between 5 and 7 BCE to be able to have been born in the days of Herod. Now, that's an important little tidbit to hold in the back of your mind because it's important to the, the star's eventual identity. Now, the next thing that we have is that Magi from the east, Magos in Greek. Who were these Magos? Who were these Magi? Well, they were astronomers, but they were also astrologers, philosophers and advisors to the king, basically wise men from the east. Now, this meant that they were in what is today Iran, the Persian Empire, possibly the Parthian Empire, which is in the northeast of what is now Iran. If they were Gentiles, they were Zoroastrians, which is the, the religion, the traditional religion of Iran, today's Iran, Persia. But there's a possibility that they were Jewish descendants of the original Jews who were exiled to Babylon when Babylon conquered the southern kingdom. And that makes a heck of a lot more sense to me. That they were Jews, they were following their tradition for centuries, looking for their king in the stars. Now we need to make a quick note about astrology here, because for any of you coming from evangelical backgrounds, that's a four-letter word, right? That, that is verboten, that's a cult, that's this and that's that. When we talk about astrology biblically, and yes, there is astrology in the Bible biblically, the ancient world saw astronomy and astrology as basically the same thing. Now, the Greeks later on introduced the horoscope, which means the hour, to see the hour, and that meant the hour of the birth. And the horoscopes then took the stars to relate directly to individual people and, you know, their personalities and things that would happen to them. That was not the original intent of astrology. Astrology always dealt in the macro they believed as above, so below, that the lights in the heavens, which Genesis says were given as signs and seasons for mankind, would mirror the, the large movements of nations and peoples and kings and so on and so forth. And so they saw in the stars a mirror image and could know then something that was happening, but only in the large areas. Um, the Bible calls the zodiac the Matsarov, and uh, it's... The imagery is there. It's not that we need to believe superstitiously in anything about the Zodiac, but we do need to acknowledge that in the Bible, it's a kind of a, an additional meaning system. 
a way of understanding these movements, a way of being able to set up imagery that allows us to understand the movements of time and the movements of nations. And that's the extent of it, if we can just understand that. But the imagery is there, and if we're going to understand what the Bible is saying in some of its areas, we need to bring in this knowledge of astrology and what it meant to the people at that time. So, the star is in the east when they see it. But you need to understand another thing, that all lights in the heavens, in the night sky, were called stars except the sun and the moon. All right? So whether it was stars or planets, comets, meteors, all were called stars. And there was a distinction made between the fixed stars and what they called wanderers. And in Greek, that word is planetes, which is where we get the word planet. Now, what are the wandering stars and the fixed stars? Well, the stars that we see in the sky, they are so far away. They're moving. Everything is moving in the universe. It's an expanding universe. But they're so far away that they look like they never move. For thousands of years, the constellations have been basically the same. If you run the clock forward, eventually all our constellations are going to get pulled apart, kind of like an image on Silly, Silly Putty. Did you guys ever do that? It's going to look like that. But right now, they look fixed. They don't move. But then there's other lights that are moving. And those are the planets and comets and meteors and so on and so forth. The planets are the ones that we're interested in because they move along the ecliptic around the sun. But how could a star in the east lead the Magi west to Jerusalem and then stand over Bethlehem? How could that possibly happen? Now just hold that thought for a second. I'm asking you to hold a lot of thoughts for a second. I'm trying to put it together here at the end. The next clue is that Herod asked the exact time the star appeared. Why didn't he and his wise men see it in the first place? Why did they have to ask these wise men? Hold that thought. And lastly, the star went before and stood over. How could any physical star do this? How could a planet do this? All right? Are you ready for some answers now? And I've got answers in quotes here because there are no real answers, but we're going to see if we can at least put together a scenario that fits all of these clues in Matthew and see if it's something that seems plausible to you. Is there anything, first of all, that could fit all of these clues? Well, it could be a miracle star. God just made the star do all that, right? Perhaps. Scholars have suggested all sorts of answers to this question. This has been a big question for thousands of years, right? They have suggested comets, meteors, supernova was a big one, you know, where a star explodes and gets really bright. Maybe a conjunction of planets, planets lining up, and that looks really bright. But think about it. Anything that spectacular in the night sky, Herod would have seen it, right? His wise men, his astronomers would have seen it too. There, and further, there is no astronomical evidence for any sort of event like that in the sky within the time frame between 5 and 7 BCE that Jesus needs to have been born. So nothing astronomical can explain this. Going, Finding the star in the east, having it go before, and then standing over. So is there anything at all that we can see would explain this? And yes, there is, but it's going to be astrological. Okay, so put any of your bias aside for a second, because this is going to be of astrological significance. And because it's astrological, it would have been invisible to everyone but the Magi. 
those astronomer astrologers anywhere could have seen this, but not to the naked eye. It's not anything that you're going to see in the sky. And the words that are used in the Gospels to describe those clues that we talked about in the East, right, going before, standing over, were the exact words that the Greeks astronomers used to describe apparent motion of what they saw in the heavens. So understand, the words that are used in the Gospels are the astronomical descriptions of apparent motion of heavenly bodies. So the first one is in the East, entai anatole in Greek, literally means in its rising. Not in the East, but in its rising. But everything rises in the East, and so it makes sense that you'd see it in the East. But literally means in its rising. And what this is referring to in astronomy is a heliacal rising. And I know that's a big word, heliacal. It's just helios, which is the, the uh, Greek word for sun. So a heliacal rising would be if you were standing in the dark right before dawn and facing east as the, sun is, as the uh, eastern horizon is just starting to lighten before dawn, and then a star rises, crests the horizon, and it's there for a few minutes, and then it's blown out as the sun rises into it. That would be a heliacal rising. The planets do this, and it's very significant in astrology. And then when they rise, they go before in the sense that since the planets are moving on their orbit, and we're watching not from a stationary object, but we're moving in our orbit. And so because of the relative motion of us on this planet, and that planet as it rises above the horizon, it's either moving east or it could be moving west, but it's going before in one direction or another. Okay, so that's what they're observing. As the planet rises just before dawn, it's going to be moving across on successive dawns as they're, as they're observing it. And so this is what's happening in this rising. To go before, we just talked about proago, that is the wandering. That's what the word means to wander in Greek. And it would wander east or west against the backdrop of those fixed stars that we talked about. The third one is to stand over. All right? Histomy apano. Apparent retrograde is what they're talking about here. Sometimes, you know, the inner planets are moving faster. They, they have more... Um, yeah, they're, they're going faster. So, in other words, the Earth is going to take many revolutions around the sun before Mars, or especially Jupiter, makes one, right? So the Earth is going to lap the other planet as it's going around. Think of it as you driving down the freeway. Let's say we're going west on the freeway, and there's a car in front of you in the next lane, but you're going a little bit faster than that car. And so the car is going before you and going west, but you're slowly pulling up to it, and at a certain point, it's right outside your window, and it seems to stop for a second, and then it starts going backwards as you pull away. That's the apparent retrograde. Now, in truth, everybody's going forward and doing what they do, but from our point of view, it looks like it's going forward, it looks like it stops, and it looks like it's going back. So there's a big thing about Mars being in retrograde and then everybody's life falls apart, right? You've heard about that one before, probably. But the idea here is to stand over is this description of apparent retrograde. Now, is there an astrological event that we can point to that accounts for all of Matthew's clues? And if so, how could we even know? 
How are we going to know what happened 2,000 years ago, right? Well, it turns out that the universe and the solar system are like giant clocks. They're very precise. And you can input all this data into a computer. God bless computers, right? And then you can basically run the star maps forward and back, and it's absolutely accurate. We can know what the stars in, are going to look like and what's going to happen 10 years from now, 1,000 years from now, and we can go backward and know what happened 2,000 years ago because we can just run these computer models back and forth. So on April 17th, 6 BCE, all right, Jupiter, the planet Jupiter, had a heliacal rise in Leo, the constellation Leo. Now you about the you know about the signs of the zodiac. There's 12 constellations that are right on the ecliptic, and so what happens is Jupiter, and Jupiter was the king of gods. So you got Jupiter it symbolizes as a king, rising before the sun into Leo, which is also a king, the lion, but also the symbol of Judah heard of the lion of the tribe of Judah? Judah was symbolized by a lion in, in Jewish tradition. And then it goes before. In other words, it's moving west in its apparent motion, wandering west. And then it's occulted by the moon in Aries. That means the moon passed over it in Aries, which is another constellation that was a symbol of Israel itself. Aries the ram. And then it continued west. So Putting all that together, these, I would think, Jewish astronomers understood that they were supposed to, that a king was born in the West, in Judea, and they needed to go to Israel in order to find him. That was their clue. That's what they did. And so they go to Jerusalem. Now understand, they didn't know where to go from there. In fact, they didn't even know to go to Jerusalem. All they knew was to go to Israel, go to Judah within Israel. And so where are you going to go? Well, go to the capital. Go to the king. You know, talk to the source. Find out what you need to know. It's Herod who directs them to Bethlehem. And so they go to Bethlehem. But what happens on December 19th? Jupiter went retrograde on December 19th. That means when they got to Bethlehem, Jupiter stopped, stood over, and then, of course, started to move east from there. On December 19th, if Jesus was born in the spring, he would have been about eight months old. Is Sharon still here? Her, that little grandbaby of hers is nine months old. So Jesus would have been about that age by the time that they got there. And that would make his birthday April 17th, 6 BCE. Is that true? <laughs> we don't know. Is that, more, more importantly, is that what Matthew was trying to get across to us? Now, we can't know that, but it's the only natural explanation that fits all the clues. And it would have only have been significant to the Magi, to the astronomers, and possibly only to those who were of Jewish descent, because they were the ones who had spent centuries looking for clues among the stars, because they were longing for the king who would bring them back, who would fulfill all the promises that prophetically were uttered in the Old Testament and bring them back into sovereignty again. There was this longing, this looking for the king, looking for the prophet. Why would they search for centuries otherwise? Why would they travel as long as two years to go visit this king, to pay honor to this king, especially across the dangerous Parthian-Roman border where they easily could have been killed. You see, Christmas is the story of the improbable. 
and it can be the story of the nearly impossible, but it's certainly the story of the unexpected. Nothing about Jesus' birth is what you would expect for who he is in our tradition to be. It's improbable. It's nearly impossible. And it's certainly unexpected. And if we're not prepared to see, we will miss it. The Magi were prepared. They were prepared to see the star. They were prepared to take the journey that the star was instructing them to take. I always remember the song by James Taylor. Do you know that one? Home by Another Way? It's about the Magi. Metaphorically, of course. But in the line, he says, maybe me and you can be wise guys too and go home by another way. I always love that line. Maybe you and me, maybe me and you can be wise guys too. How do we do that? How do we become wise guys too? Well, Jesus and the Magi are showing us. Take a look at Jesus in Matthew 7, starting at verse 7. He says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. And we've talked about this, and we're going to be talking about this in our red letter study soon. But we need to understand what Jesus is talking about asking, seeking, and knocking. It's a process. It's a process and a way forward. To ask is not just to casually ask for something that you want. The word there in Aramaic is selu. It's related to selah, which is prayer. And we've talked about prayer as being a leaning forward into, an expectancy, a deep longing. And selu is the same idea, to ask for those things, but with this deep longing, with this desire. The star represents the desire. The star was the longing of centuries of these magi, these astronomer astrologers, waiting for the, the fulfillment of all the prophecies that were given their people. And they were looking and longing. For us, it's that looking and longing to know the presence of God. How much do we really want that? What are we willing to do after the desire? Does the desire really motivate us? Khalil Gibran in the in the prophet had a couple of lines in one of the poems on good and evil that I think illustrates what we're talking about here. He says, in your longing for your giant self, he's talking about the true self, the one beneath the ego consciousness, in your longing for your giant self lies your goodness. And that longing is in all of you. But in some of you, that longing is a torrent rushing with might to the sea, carrying the secrets of the hillsides and the songs of the forest. And in others, it is a flat stream that loses itself in angles and bends and lingers before it reaches the shore. So what is the temperature of your desire? Are you whitewater rapids? Or are you just slowly eddying along? How much does your desire motivate you? How much do you feel that pull, that longing to action? And that is the next step, the action itself. Seeking, bea in Aramaic. Not just looking for something that you lost again casually, but this has the, oh, this is an intense search that starts inside and moves to outside. It's, it's, a, it's that deep, deep longing that moves into action. And so this, of course, is the journey. If the desire is the star, then the 
action is the journey that comes from the motivation of the desire that we feel. We've got to set out. We've got to risk what we risk setting out in new and different directions, different actions. Will we have the perseverance of the faith walk, acting as if something's true, even if there's no evidence? And then finally, there's the knock, kosh in Aramaic. It's interesting that, that uh, this word knock, kosh, really means to hammer in a tent peg is the, uh, the uh, root meaning of it. And the idea is when you finally put your tent together, you have realized a space that people can live in. It can also mean to strike a musical note. When you do that, you're creating vibrations that everyone is, is, can hear. To, to actually knock is to make something real that can be apprehended by a community of people. It's a new reality that everyone can see and everyone can participate in. And if you're willing, when you finally experience that new reality, are you willing to make it your reality? Or are you going to run away from it and try to rebuild the walls of what you thought you already knew, what was comfortable and familiar to you? Or are you willing to embrace this new reality? The gifts of the Magi represent the surrender to that new reality. They didn't expect Jesus to be where Jesus was, you know, in the, in the place with the animals, in the feeding trough. It was probably the farthest thing from their mind when they set out from Babylon. But when they got there, they were able to surrender to the truth of what they saw, the truth of what they understood. It's to make this real, to let go of the expectations we had, the control that we were trying to maintain, to surrender, to move into that anavim spirit, that humility, that poverty of spirit. And even the gifts form another metaphor for us, if you think about it. Gold symbolizes desire. We all desire the gold, right? We want that. That is the desire. Frankincense was a spice that was burned as incense around the temple. And there was the understanding of the Jews that as the smoke went up, that sweet fragrance took their prayers with them and was a sweet smell in God's nostrils. And so frankincense represents the action of what we actually do with the desire of our gold. And then finally, myrrh, another spice that was typically used in embalming the bodies, anointing the bodies before they were put into the tomb. And of course, death is the ultimate surrender. So even in the three gifts, the symbolic gifts of the Magi, and we don't know that there were three. We don't know that there were three of them. We don't know that they were kings because none of that is mentioned. It's just wise men from the East. But those three symbolic gifts gives us the desire, the action, and the surrender that is necessary to the asking and the seeking and the knocking, this process of becoming more and more aligned with something absolutely different, radically different and new. And if we are going to understand what Christmas means, this is the process that we're going to need to take. And if you think about it, this is the shape of every spiritual journey. This is the shape of the psychological journey. Even if you're not understanding it in terms of your faith or your religion, it is the shape of the journey that we take. That there has to be a desire that motivates us to move in new directions and then to actually accept and surrender to the truth we find if it doesn't comport with everything we thought we knew. Think about Abraham. He thought everything that had to do with God's promise to make him the father of a great nation was embodied in his son Isaac, the miracle child that was born to them when they were 100 years old. 
Everything hung on Isaac. That's where he placed his trust. That's where he was looking for truth to appear. And what does God do? He says, you need to sacrifice your son. Now, what God would do that, right? Well, again, metaphor, right? He wasn't asking him to kill his son. He was asking him to kill his expectancy that everything was going to be delivered physically through his son. That wasn't it. Abraham became a hero of our faith when he let go of what he thought he knew and embraced a completely different reality because Abraham is the father of the three great monotheistic religions on this planet. Billions of people call Abraham their father, but not through Isaac. Moses thought that everything was centered on the promised land, spent 40 years trying to bring his people into the promised land. But on the top of Mount Nebo, inside of the land, he dies there because it wasn't about the land itself. The land didn't make the nation. And the people had to stop looking at Moses for the deliverance and look at God directly if they were ever going to be the nation that God intended. Moses had to let go of the promised land. Solomon thought it was all about wisdom, spends his whole life acquiring it, and yet at the end of his life in Ecclesiastes, he says it's not about wisdom either. The wise man and the fool die alike. It's got to be about something else, and he understood it was about presence. It was about just eating and drinking and doing your work and loving your wife and just loving your life. That was it. Not all these other things that he had required. And, of course, the apostles clinging to Jesus as a man, as a friend, but also as their expectation of Messiah. What he was going to do as a warrior king to bring Israel back into prominence as a sovereign nation, kick out the Romans, and of course seat them alongside him in power. And Jesus had to die in order for them to experience this new reality that they finally surrendered to in the resurrection. They understood that Jesus still lived, but not in the way that they thought. This is the shape of the journey. And now you have the Magi looking for the spectacular king that they expected and confronted with this poor, speechless child on the margins of life. And yet they were able to surrender to that and understand. He was their king, but in a way they never expected. They were heroes of faith. They are heroes of our faith. And that they all started the journey with a misdirected desire, looking for something other than what they found was the real deal. I wrote a line in, in uh, one of my books that a hero is not one who completes the journey. A hero is not the one who completes the journey. The hero is the one whom the journey completes. It's not about taking a journey. It's not about acquiring the thing that you set out to do. It's about whether the journey changes you, teaches you, completes you in ways that you never anticipated when you started. Our initial desire can definitely be mistaken. It always is in the first half of life, right? When we're looking out there, outside ourselves for meaning and trying to acquire it, trying to build it, trying to identify with it, the roles we play in everything. But if that desire is strong enough to move us and continue the action, the risk that we take, if we continue to take this journey and persevere, we will be confronted with the truth. And then it's up to us. 
when we are confronted with the truth, with the limitation of the desire that we set out with, with the limitation of our star, but we don't give up the seeking, then we can start to see the star within the star. As Richard Rohr likes to say, the task within the task, the task that we think that we're here to complete, as we carry on, we realize that there's a task within that that has to do with deep connection and oneness and love, if you want to think of it that way. If we persevere, we will see that deeper truth within the task. And if we're ready and willing to submit and surrender to it, to absolutely let go of the certainty that we're craving, then we will be able to see the king and the prophet in a poor, speechless child. We will literally be able to see Emmanuel, God with us, in all the forms that God is with us in our lives. And when that happens, it becomes absolutely true. Me and you, can be wise guys too. Let's pray. Father, this is what we say we want. This is why we're here. This is why our actions have been moving in the direction that they have been. That we desire to know you more. We desire to know how we live in relationship with you and with each other in this life. Stoke our desire hotter. Take our desire deeper into motivation that will move us in directions that we may not have contemplated yet. Move us in directions that seem too scary right now. Help us to leave no stone unturned in our journey by keeping the desire to know you more and more hot in our hearts. We want you, Lord. We want you this Christmas. We want to know how this Christmas can change the way that we see our relationship with you. So help us to keep that desire moving and overcome the risk that we perceive. And when we do come across something that our hearts know is true but our minds won't yet accept, that we will go with our hearts and surrender to this new truth and find ways to accommodate that instead of the other way around. Thank you for always guiding us and being constant in your care for us, Lord. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.